off in our study here in chapter 12, looking at verses 1 through 19. We're going to look at a stable God in an unstable world. And, uh, you know, this week as I was thinking through this passage and, and thinking about what's in this passage, um, I was thinking about the fact that as human beings, God has done something very unique and that he has given us uh, something different than he has given to the animals. Animals operate off of instincts, but we can think and we can reason. We can make decisions. We can uh, decide to do one thing or decide to do something else. If something breaks, we can figure out a better way to do something. Where animals, they don't really have that. They, they operate a lot more off of instincts. And, uh, and so they're not necessarily making adjustments along the way. That, that we can make. We can recreate things. There's all kinds of things that God's given us because we're created in, our, in his image. And when he created us in his image, he said, listen, I want you to reflect me. So I'm going to put you on a planet and I'm going to tell you to work with this creation. Do stuff with it and bring glory to me as you do. Now, that's all great news when you hear that, but then there's also a reality of that, that it also means that if I make certain decisions, those decisions can impact you. Sometimes I can make a bad decision, and that bad decision can impact your life. Or you could make a bad decision and impact my life. I was thinking about this in light of uh, terrorism. Right now, there are people sitting in rooms trying to figure out how to hurt other people, right? There are people who are actually sitting down plotting. How could we set off a bomb in New York City or in Chicago? How could we hurt someone? People have that ability to sit there and think that way and to use that ability to, to decide and make decisions and work to hurt others. And when you think about it, we live in a world where we have to deal with that. We live in a world where, where, where you're going on with your life, but the decisions of someone else can impact others. This was really, really hit me a few years ago, many years ago, when I toured Auschwitz. If any of you have ever been to any of those in Europe, any of those, those camps that were put together, the death camps, there are you know, very powerful things to see those. And, and one of the things that really struck me, even to this day when I think about it, is it was actually in a records room. It wasn't uh, you know, some of the more dramatic things you could see there. But there was a records room, and in that records room, the, you know, the Nazis had kept such thorough records of all the people that they had killed. And one of the records that was kept was sitting on top. And I couldn't read German, but I was looking at it. But all I noticed was Chicago, Illinois was written that I could read that, Chicago, Illinois. So I asked the tour guide, what does this say? And the tour guide said, oh, this was somebody who died here in Auschwitz. Um, actually, the way the record reads, he, went, he was from Chicago, and he went on vacation a few weeks before the Blitzkrieg, before the Nazis attacked. He went to go back to Poland to visit his, his cousin or his brother, some relative. He's from Chicago, gets on a boat, sails across the ocean, goes to visit his brother. Blitzkrieg happens, he winds up not able to leave because he was Jewish. And then he winds up in Auschwitz and he's killed. And you think, well, he has a U.S. passport, you know. Can't he get out? Isn't this right? How can that be fair, you know? Like he, but yet, on the one hand, it could really look that way as if, wow, it's, taking, it's chances. And, and you can see why some people actually, like, hold themselves up in their houses when they start thinking this way, Right? You're probably going, Lesson, where's the sermon going, man? I want to go home. Right? You know, like, you're, not, you're not encouraging me. But it's true. And then when you think about it, let's drive the depression a little further here. When you think about it, and, and you go, 
well, how about going to the mission field? Let's go to the mission field. Let's go to the far reaches of places where people hate Christians, and if they, if they caught them, they'd cut their head off. Should we go? Let's take our family there. You'd be like, wow, no. Do you understand how dangerous that would be? We could die, right? And so all of a sudden, if we start thinking through that lens, and we start looking at the world through the lens that I've just presented to you, it would be very easy to withdraw, wouldn't it? It'd be very easy to say, you know what, man? There's too many evil people in the world. Let's just sit in the basement, pray for the rapture, and try to endure to the end. It'd be easy to think that way. Well, the passage we're looking at in Luke, I believe, is here to challenge that thought a little bit. To remind us that we do live in a dangerous world, but the evil people don't have ultimate control. The wicked people do not ultimately have, at the end of the day, full control over everything. As scary as it is, and as in one sense, yes, people do die, Christians are martyred. On the one hand, that is true. On the other hand, evil doesn't own the day. And if the church is going to advance into this hostile Gentile world, it needs to be reminded God is in control. I like to call this little section here, this is my little name, for this section. This uh, Acts 12, 1 through 19, is my little mini book of Revelation. The book of Revelation was designed not to teach us about the Antichrist, but to teach us Jesus Christ is king, and he's coming back, and the rulers of the world do not have the last word. And as the church is enduring, they need to see a picture of Jesus as ruler, as king, as sovereign, as Lord, and that's what this passage is about right here. It's to remind the church Jesus is in control. And as you go into that Gentile world, as dangerous as it is, and yes, some of you might die, do not think that God is not connected, he's not involved, he's not present, he is there. And that's what's here, that's what this is about. So we're going to see this persecution, we'll see your outline, you see it in your bulletin, the first point I call it is the politics of persecution, the point of it is we're going to see the persecution and what was driving this persecution was politics, and we're going to see kind of a little bit of what you might call the hopelessness of that. But then we're going to see the power of prayer. And when we talk about the power of prayer, we're actually going to talk about why they were praying and what they were praying for and how they were praying. And we're going to unpack that a little bit because my heart for us is to recognize that this passage is intended to embolden us to proclaim Jesus. This passage is intended to say, listen, don't be afraid. Yes, you might die, but don't be afraid because you might not. Don't be afraid. And then what we're going to do is we're going to, in conclusion then, partake of the Lord's table together to proclaim Jesus boldly. And it'll be a great sense of worship at the end. But let's look at the text here. Let's look at the politics of persecution. I call this the politics of persecution because as you're going to see, Herod, who's unleashing this persecution on the church, is only doing it for political gain, which kind of makes things a little more frustrating for people. But let's look at it here. Look at verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. There's a lot of stuff here, and so let me kind of set the table. First of all, you need to know who this Herod is. This is not the same Herod from when Jesus was born. This is the grandson of Herod the Great. 
This particular Herod was put in control over this region of Palestine, and uh, he was not liked by the Roman Senate. He was not a guy who was on the fast track to any kind of Roman political gain. He was there kind of as a punishment a little bit, not, not a very well-liked man. And so what he was trying to do was he needed to win the favor of the Jewish people. The Jewish people didn't like him either, so, you know, he's kind of at this political dead end in his career. And so what he needs to do is he needs to get the people of Israel to affirm him. He's got to do this. He's got to to be seen as a popular leader. He's trying to raise his status as uh, as a political leader. And so here's what he does. He lays violent hands on some who belong to the church. Now, I want you to notice in the text, notice it says, about that time. And you've got to say, what does that mean, about that time that Herod did this? This is all flowing in the text, basically saying this. This is at the same time that the church in Antioch was coming to, to the forefront. So now, you've got to catch a little of the context here so you can understand why Herod's making the decision he's making. Christians who go out, they're preaching the gospel. They go out to Antioch, way up north, close to Syria. Or, I mean, close to what we call Turkey, up in that region. They're up in that area. They're preaching the gospel. Gentiles, non-Jews, are getting saved. And, the, and these Jewish evangelists that are going out are saying, you have a seat at the table. You can place your faith in Jesus. You're one of us. Which made the Jews very upset because they didn't want to hear that these Gentiles have a seat at the table. They, they want to hear, you Gentiles need to actually become Jews. You need to come in, fall under the law, get circumcised, do all these things, right? You can't just accept these pagan people. They're coming in with five wives and concubines, all this kind of crazy stuff, doing drugs at the temple. And they're going to walk in, and you're just going to say, you believe in Jesus, and you're, you're set with God? You can't say that, right? So they're getting mad, getting upset. But the church is saying, listen, Christ's death was sufficient. They're forgiven. They've been given the very Spirit of God. They have a seat at the table just like us. The Jews now are getting angry at this. This is what Luke's kind of cueing us in on when he says about that time. As Antioch is emerging, Herod then realizes that the Jewish population is beginning to really hate the church. And so he says, ah, here's my strategy. I'll go persecute some Christians. So when he says he lays violent hands, here's what it's basically saying. Herod sends his soldiers out, and he begins to beat up Christians. If you're a Christian, he's sending the soldiers out, and they're bringing their clubs and their swords, and they're they're beating you up. They're, they're, They're beating you down to the ground. You could be walking to the market, and there would be a Roman soldier. You Christian, yes. You know, just laying violent hands, just whooping up on them. And then what happens? Well... They go after, and they get James. There's a couple of Jameses in, in, in the church. This is James, the brother of John, and he's part of that threefold group, Peter, James, and John. Remember those names, those guys that went up to the Mount of Transfiguration? This is that James. There's another James that shows up later. We'll hear about him in a minute or a little bit. But this is that James of that trifold group. He is seen as one of the leaders, right? These three guys, Peter, James, and John, you know, they, they've had the inner core. And so Herod sends his soldiers out. They grab James, and they cut his head off. Now, this is a risky move on Herod's part. Luke is kind of keying us in. He's testing the waters. How far can I go? If I kill this guy, because he is Jewish, will they revolt? So he grabs James, who's 
a leader, but not of the highest prominence of Peter or John. It's like you're grabbing your number three guy. Cuts his head off. The people go, hip, hip, hooray. And he goes, all right, I'm going after Peter. All right, this worked. The strategy worked. So they grab Peter. And when they grab Peter, they toss him into prison. And this time that they do it is during the time of unleavened bread. Now, the reason why Luke kind of points that out to us is because the Passover had a couple weeks ceremony to it. The first was kind of the, the, the Passover celebration. And then seven days after the Passover, they had what's called the Feast of Breads or Unleavened Bread, which meant they couldn't have any leaven in their home, eat any leavened bread, be around any leaven anywhere for seven days. It was a ritual. So that meant that nothing happened. Pretty much everything stopped for that seven-day period. Herod isn't going to put Peter on trial and call a trial and all that stuff when they're doing a celebration because he's trying to win these people over. So he tosses them in prison for seven days. Okay, so there's your context, right? So now he's in prison, seven days in prison, as uh, the Jews are waiting to get through this feast of unleavened bread. Verse 4, look at what happens. And when he seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Okay, so you got four, a squad was four soldiers. You would not believe this, just to show you how bad my math is. I literally thought it was 12 guards for a while. Then I went, four times four is not 12. What am I thinking? See, this is why I, I caught it yesterday. But like for all week long, I had 12 down, and I thought, boy, oh boy, I would never live that down. There were 16 guards, okay? This is why I don't do math up here, okay? 16 guards. Here's the way that it works. If you were a high-priority person, the Roman uh, government had a system, an actual system in place. You had four guards. You were chained to two guards. Oftentimes, they would chain your wrists and your feet to two guards. And then you had one guard inside the cell and one guard outside the cell. And every three hours, they swapped out guards for a 24-hour period because it was illegal for the guards to fall asleep. If you fell asleep, you were killed. So these guards are pretty, you know, their life's on the line. They've got them in the most secure prison, you could say, around. This prison actually was outside of Jerusalem, down the hill a little bit. So, I mean, even if you escape, just getting back from the prison into the city would be complex because this, this prison was outside the city gates. At night, the city gates would be closed. So even if at night you escaped, there would be nowhere to go other than out to where the lions were, and you'd probably get eaten by a lion. So, I mean, it was just a, just a high, secure situation. This is where Peter is. He's being guarded. And when you look at that situation, you think, oh, my word, it's hopeless James has already had his head cut off. The people hate the Christians. And the only thing that's keeping Peter's head on right now is the fact that they're in the middle of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. If they weren't in the middle of that feast, his head probably would have been gone. So, that situation appears relatively hopeless. If we stop the story here, we would stop and say, yep, it's just another one of those situations. Evil has won. Herod has won. He, Kill James, he's going to kill Peter, and he's just going to start clicking them off, man. We're going to have nobody left. All the apostles will be gone in a month. This is just a bad situation, and evil has won, and there's nothing that can happen. And so these are tough moments. And at these tough moments, we have faced things not as obviously as intense as this, 
but maybe we have faced situations that feel as tough. You feel backed in a corner. You feel like there's nowhere to go. You feel like God is not there, right? I mean, where is God at this moment? One guy's already been killed. Got another one about ready to get killed. What is happening? What do you do in this moment? How do you act? Well, and especially when these forces of politics and other things are are forcing this upon you. This wasn't a situation of justice. Peter wasn't arrested for something he did. He was arrested because of a political the political movement of someone, the political desires of someone, and, and therefore you can't even argue against that. There's no lawyers that's going to fight against this. You can't do anything about it. It's a, it's a real problem. Well, let's close in prayer here. and we'll just, No, I'm kidding. What do you do? What do you do? Well, let's look at the power of prayer. I want to show you what happened, and as we look at this, I hope that this helps you understand prayer a little bit differently because at this moment, that little statement, the power of prayer, I don't mean it in the trite sense of, uh, of a bumper sticker or a T-shirt. There's something here that's way deeper, and I, and I hope that we see it, than just the bumper sticker kind of power of prayer statement. So look at verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, you can figure out, even if you don't know Greek, that earnest prayer is intense prayer, right? I mean, you can figure that out. Earnest prayer is that idea of, like, you are just laying your heart before God. Like, this is it. You're just you're putting it all out there, right? It's not just a quick prayer meeting. It's, uh, you know, on your knees crying, you know, everything. I mean, it's, you, it's all out there. And the picture that's going to get painted here is that the church is doing this every day while Peter's in prison, which we're going to find out he was in prison up till. The, the, the last night. He was in prison for six days. So they're praying. Now the question is this. Why are they praying? What, 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 what makes a person pray and what keeps you from praying? I was thinking about that a lot this week. Why would you pray and why don't you pray? So I started thinking, well, let me, let me answer the question. Why don't we pray? And I've kind of come to this conclusion. I'm trying to reduce it down to a simple point. And I've I've realized, I think one maybe potential answer to this is that what can keep us from praying is the belief that God is in control. And that's what this text is about, teaching us that point. But it is really easy to think. I mean, if you were living at that point in time, and you know that you're, you know, Peter is chained, and you're there praying for him, and you're thinking, wow, you know, our beloved brother and shepherd and apostle James has already had his head cut off. Ah, this is going to be horrible for Peter. This is it. It's over. Once this feast is done, man, there's not going to be a trial. They're just going to yank him up and, and cut his head off. There's no way out of this. But, and, and if you stop there emotionally, then why even pray if that's the reality? I've come to the conclusion, and I think this is what Luke is trying to teach us. Prayer, what drives prayer, is the belief in the control, that God is in control. Now, we're going to learn something about this church. I believe that they believe that, but I also believe that they believed it a little bit. And that little bit was enough. Because we're going to see that that they even didn't believe that God was going to answer the prayer. That they were praying. But they prayed. And I find great comfort in their struggle. And you'll see it here as it unfolds. Great comfort. 
Because I don't, I'm not idealizing them that they just did everything perfect. They were struggling, but man, they just brought it to the God who they believed was in control, laid their heart. And I realized what drives prayer is the belief that God is in control. And if you don't believe God's in control, then you wouldn't pray. And I've realized something. That it is my doctrine of God that is directly behind my desire to pray. How I define God determines how I pray. And if I feel like he's distant, if I feel like he's just vindictive, I feel like he's disconnected, then why would you even pray about it? But if you feel like he's there and he's involved, and that, yeah, maybe things aren't going to work out, you know, James did get killed, right? But even regardless, to say he's there, he's present. If I get my head cut off, that's his will, and I'll, I'll be content, that, but he's still here. And if I am freed from this, I'll be content because he's still here. It's kind of that belief and that's only from God, right? Because that's not a rational statement. It is rational if God opens your eyes to see that. So let's look at how the story unfolds. They're praying. I believe they trust that God is in control. Look at verse 6. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Okay, we've already described the situation he's in. But notice where we're at in the timestamp. You know, if, if he was arrested on a Sunday, we're now to the last day, right? He, we're, we're now to the, to, the, to the last day of this festival. He's been in prison six days. This is the sixth evening. The next morning, he's going to bring him out to kill him. And he's bound to these sentries. And there's no way out of this situation. But I want you to notice something. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. I don't believe the soldiers were sleeping, but Peter's asleep. He's asleep, and he is really asleep. In fact, you're going to see in a minute, he's in a deep sleep. I mean, he is resting, and I just think, wow, this is like the most stressful moment, right? And I mean, I'm in like less stressful moments, and I toss and turn it all night, right? <laughs> he is like asleep. Man, you think, man, he just trusts God at this moment. He just trusts him. He's asleep. And notice what happens. I love this story. It just, it makes me laugh. It does. I'll show you here. It just makes this amazing story. Look at verse 7. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hand. Now, these guards aren't seeing any of this. I don't believe they're asleep, but there's this bright light. And then, here's the part that makes me chuckle. Peter gets hit by an angel. It struck him. Literally punched him. I don't know. There's no real theological point there other than an angel hitting a guy. <laughs> there's precious moments, angel. Wham! You know, like that. You know, like it's like, I don't think the angels look like the precious moments angels, but you know, this, in my mind though, that was the visual picture that came down. Woo -doo 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 -doo. Bright light. Woo -doo -doo. Don't wake up! Right? You know, people are like, stop hitting me, you know? Like, but he wakes them up. That didn't happen, right? That's in the Leston version, and that's why they don't publish that Leston version. <laughs> Isn't that funny though? But that's the deep sleep he's in. That's the point of the story. He's so asleep that the angel has to hit him to wake him up. 
He says, get up quickly. And all of a sudden, boom, the chains fall off. Amazing moment. As these guards are there, they're not witnessing any of this. We have no record that, that, that God caused a sleep to come over the guards or anything like that. All we know is there's this bright light. The chains fall off. The angel says, get up. I honestly don't believe these guards would be sleeping because these guards understand that if they fall asleep, they will be killed. They will be executed. That is just the way that it works. In fact, I don't know if you know this. In the United States military today, uh, officers carry sidearms. Now, there's a tradition that goes all the way back to the Roman soldiers of why an officer carries a pistol. Officers don't carry the pistols because they want them lightly armed when they're fighting the enemy. Officers carry pistols, technically, the reason why, we don't practice this, okay? But the, 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 the history of it is, if you are doing your rounds and one of your soldiers are asleep, you kill them. The pistols for your own men. It's, that's, it comes from the Roman practice. If you fall asleep, you get your head cut off. These guys are, I, they have to be awake in my, I just, unless God would put a divine sleep, and I think if God put a divine sleep, he would have told us. The point of the reason why I'm making all this big point is to say this. This is a miracle. This is a miracle. The church is seeing something. When you go advance into this world, you go under the realization that God is in control of this world. The evil people are not. Look at verse 8. The angel said to him, dress yourself, put on your sandals, and he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Now, the picture here, when he says dress yourself and wrap your cloak around, basically, you know they have a tunic. And so uh, he's to take his tunic, that's the like, inner clothes, and he's to pull it up between his legs and make a pair of shorts. And then he's wrapping his coat around his waist. The idea is, we're running. That's the picture. We're running for it, you know. Get ready to go. We're on the run. And that's the picture. So the angel is moving them quickly. Get your clothes on. Get ready to go. Gird yourself. And follow me. We're heading out. That's the picture, verse 9. And he went out and he followed him. And he did not know what was being done by the angel was real. But he thought he was seeing a vision, right? I mean, Peter's already seen a vision. He fell asleep on a rooftop and the sheet came down. This is common for Peter. He falls asleep and God puts him in these weird situations. So you would think laying in a, you know, you're asleep and all of a sudden, bright light, get hit by an angel. All of a sudden, chains fall off and you're running. You would think that's probably a vision. That's not normal life. So that's where he's at, right? Peter does, you know, and that's probably what we'd all be thinking at that moment. Verse 10 When they passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. So the picture you have is he walks out of the prison, walks past the guards, walks up the hill, and there's a giant iron gate that surrounds the city that it takes teams of horses to move. This is why you put the prison out there. If you escape, you you can't get back home. He's got this big gate around the city. And the gate opens up. And they start walking down the street of the city. And then the angel, angel says, my job is done here. Boom, disappears. He's out of prison. The gate has opened. And now he's walking. Verse 11, when Peter came to himself, 
He said, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent an angel to rescue me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people we're expecting, right? Okay, this is real. He's realized this, right? God's telling the church, man, I am here. I'm involved. When you go into this very risky, dangerous world, yes, James, you might die. Peter, you might live. Just realize this. I'm here. Evil does not have the last word. Evil does not have the last word. Verse 12, when he realized this, he's got to go somewhere, right? Because he's, he's a fugitive. So when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So now we're introduced to John Mark. Remember, we've talked about this if, you, if you've been here before. Luke introduces characters that become prominent later. John Mark's our next character. He's leaking them into the story here a little bit. He becomes part of the story in a, in a few weeks. So now they're at John Mark's house. Mary's his mom. They are praying. The church is having a prayer service. By the way, it is somewhere midnight, one or two in the morning. It's the night before. It's the middle of the night. The gate has already been sealed, which means it's dark. And so he's the middle of the night, and they're up praying, right? Because they are interceding. They believe in God, and they're, they're bringing this prayer before him. So look at how the story unfolds. Again, another kind of funny part of the story. And when he knocked, verse 13, and when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate, right? So she's all, right, they're praying, hey, you know, God, would you help Peter, whatever. I don't know what they're praying. And, you know, there's a gate around the house, and he's pounding on the gate, hey, it's Peter, let me in. And, hey, it's Peter, right? And the one job she has to open the door, she doesn't do, right? It's one job. It's open the door. But she's so pumped, she runs back in. She is so excited, and she leaves Peter out there. And the story's going to tell us he's feeling a little insecure about this. Okay? The story will unfold that way. He's, you know, he, you know I, could you imagine that? You're like, man, do you? Rhoda, get back here! You know? Open the door! Right? You know, but she won't. So she runs in, verse 15. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. Right? She said, it's Peter outside. Literally, you could translate it. You are crazy. That's what that means. Out of your mind means you're crazy. You are crazy. I find comfort. They're praying a prayer. They don't even believe God's going to answer. Right? It's like, God, help them. He's outside. No. He's not outside. He's not out there. God doesn't work that way. You're out of your mind. But she kept insisting it was so. Now, it's probably, you know, late. So this is why no one's just saying, hey, Rhoda, if you, you know, there's one simple way you could make your point here. Open the door! Right? But she's not there. Okay? <laughs> she, hasn't, she hasn't figured that out yet. <laughs> right? So they're in there arguing that it's Peter outside. Peter is stuck outside. And this is going on. Right? And they're saying, no, it's his angel. When they say it's his angel, they don't mean like, you know, the guardian angel. That's, you could use the word angel to be messenger or spirit. So it's his spirit. God's allowing us, his spirit, to come and offer some words before we, he's killed. But, you know, that's all. Okay? But they think she's crazy. Now, here's what I want you to catch out of this. They are praying, and they do believe in God. And, and they've been praying for six days straight. That's the picture we get here. It's the middle of the night. They're still praying. They're going through this process. 
But here's the good news about God. God's power is so strong that he doesn't tie it into our frailty. You know, when, God, when Jesus said, listen, just the faith the size of a mustard seed could move a mountain, here's what he's saying. I'm not expecting you to possess all the faith there's possibly able to have in the world. I'm not expecting you to have perfect faith. Just trust me. Because his sovereignty and his power is not tied to your weakness. What do I mean by that? Some would say, well, hey, they didn't believe with enough faith, therefore God can only move as far as their faith can go. Could you imagine how horrible of a world that would be if God could only move to the level of our faith? Right, just give up now, man. Yeah, let's hold it up. Let's build a commune, you know, bury ourselves into the rapture, if that's true. If God can't move, God does not tie his sovereignty to my struggles. God overcomes my struggles with his sovereignty. That's God. So they're praying, God, would you do something? God's answering their prayer, and they're saying, no, God. God doesn't answer that. That isn't what God's doing. It is what God's doing. And even though they're struggling to see it, God's still doing it. Peter was not bound to the frameworks of the people praying for him. Peter was always under the hand of God, all the time. And you're always under the hand of God, all the time. When you go into this world, you're never away from God. He's not far from any one of us. That's the reality. There's the good news. Look at verse 17. Right? Because they eventually come in, and they, they, they go get him. Right? Uh, Peter's outside. He's knocking. And when finally they, they hear him at the end of 16, and they saw him, and they were amazed. And then verse 17 says what? But motioning them with his hand to be silent, like, be quiet. Let me tell you what happened here, because right? you can imagine the excitement of that moment. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the other brothers. Not the James who died. This is the other James. This is the James, the half-brother of Jesus, who ended up taking the lead in the Jerusalem church and, and operating kind of as their, their pastor to a certain degree. So he says, tell it to James and the other brothers. Then he departed and he went to another place. He got out of town. He didn't stay there. Peter kind of fades off to another town, and not much is seen of Peter, and he's not much in Jerusalem anymore. You know, he's hiding. And then, of course, there's a fallout, verse 18. Notice the fallout of the miracle. When the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter, right? That's a complicated way of saying the soldiers were freaking out. Peter is gone. Verse 19, And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Right? That's what's going to happen to him. And they went down from Judea, Caesarea, and he spent time there. So we know Peter now is down in Caesarea. Okay, what is the point of this story? I want to give you just three observations, and then we're going to, we're going to celebrate this story with the Lord's table. Here are the three observations. Because I believe Luke is putting this story in here. The Spirit of God is putting the story in here strategically at this space because the church is moving now, going out into the Gentile world, going out where there's risks, going out where it's tough. And as they go, they need to, be know, they need to know this, the first thing, that God is intimately involved with the people and the events of this world. 
as you go, you're not going outside of God. You're never stepping outside of God. And he's intimately involved. It might look like Herod was winning, but he wasn't. James did die, but God is still involved. This is not a guarantee that everything is going to go the American dream path for everyone. That's not what God promises. What he promises is that he's going to send us out as lamb among wolves to proclaim his name. And we must always remember that whether we live or die, we're in and with Christ. And if we live, it's incredible. We become more like Christ. And if we die, we gain because we get to be with him forever. And that's where we are. But we're with him. And he's involved. He's not distant. Second point. The evil intentions of man are not an immovable force in this world. It appears that way, that evil is immovable. But it is not. The whole point of this story and the whole point of Revelation is to tell you that. Evil doesn't win. It doesn't win. It's not immovable. Do not be afraid, is what it's saying. Third observation. God will oftentimes work outside the bounds of our ability to think. They're praying within a particular framework. God explodes their framework. Who would have thought that he could actually remove Peter without anybody noticing? Who would have thought that God could open a big city gate without any guards that are guarding the gate notice it? Who would have thought that Peter could be standing outside the door of someone's house screaming and yelling and no one wake up and go, who's out there making all that noise? Who would have thought? We pray because God sometimes does things in ways that you could never imagine. Putting God in a box is a dangerous thing to do. This is the kind of stuff that's intended to make us pray, but it's also to give us the confidence to be people of the gospel and to not be afraid. To be people of the gospel, to say, we can go, we can go somewhere, we can share, it won't matter. God is in control. He owns this world. Evil doesn't. And I think a fitting way to apply this passage is to proclaim Christ at his table. Christ has given us this table, and he says, every time you take this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what Paul said. Every time you take this, you are publicly saying, Jesus Christ came, he died, he took my sin upon himself, bore my wrath, God accepted that punishment in my place, raised him from the dead. And I want to go tell the world that there is the good news, that this one who was raised from the dead is the judge of the living and the dead, but because of that cross, you can be spared on the day of judgment. I want to tell the world that. And we should proclaim that boldly today. And so what we're going to do is we're going to do that by partaking of this table. And what's going to happen is men will come forward and and they'll, they'll pass out these elements. We'll pass out the bread that, that is symbolizing the body of Christ. We'll pass out the cup symbolizing the blood of Christ. And you can take those whenever you want in the course of a couple of songs. And then we'll close our time in prayer together. But as we do this and as we partake of this, there's just a couple things I want to be able to say. As we're taking it, the thought I'd like for you to have on, in your mind is that I want to proclaim Christ. I don't want to shrink back. Maybe there's a situation in your life where you have either A, thought that evil is more powerful than God, and this would be a good moment to say, wait a minute, 
The cross is where evil was conquered. Satan's head was crushed. I'm going to proclaim that, that, that this evil person or evil situation doesn't own my life. You do. Or maybe there's a situation where you have shrunk back from sharing and you were afraid. And you could say, you know what, Jesus, man, you, you're here, you're with me, you've empowered me, God, this week, give me the courage to speak what I've been afraid to speak. Think about those things as we partake of these. If you have never placed your faith in Jesus, just let these elements pass by. And here's the reason why. These elements can't save you. They point to a work. They're not the work itself. Eating this bread, this is bread and this is grape juice. It's not sufficient to cover your sin. But Christ is. And so maybe you should just pray and say, man, I I don't know if I'd be prepared for the day of judgment. So I want to trust in this one that these guys were willing to risk their lives to proclaim. They're willing to put it all on the line. I want to know this one. And maybe you could cry out to God. So let's pray together. I'm going to invite the men forward who are going to be passing out the elements. But let's pray and then let's just worship and boldly proclaim Christ. Bow your head with me. Father, I thank you for this account. I thank you for what it teaches us. Jesus, you are in control of this world. Herod isn't. The soldiers aren't. You are. It was your will for James to be executed at that moment, but it was your will for Peter to be freed. And in either case, your will was done. But your presence... Lord, as we, as we leave from this place, may we leave knowing that you are in control. Evil doesn't have the last say. God, may we stand confident in you. For those that are struggling, feel overweighed by sin, overweighed by circumstances, overweighed by, by the burdens of this world, and they, they've walked in here feeling as if there's no way out. They're backed in a corner. God, may they cry out to you. May your spirit make it evident to them today that you are here, you are present. And whatever the outcome is of their circumstances, they're not alone. But they're in, with you and in you and can live through you. God, for those that have been afraid to share and, and boldly proclaim, that have given more authority to the people they're afraid of than to you, God, may they transfer that today. May they, they no longer serve their fear but would they serve you and with boldness proclaim the glorious Christ and who died and rose from the dead and as we celebrate this table today may we do so boldly saying you have accomplished this work you've empowered us to be part of it and that you rule this world I pray this all in Christ's name Amen